0: My name is Teresa Sandok. I'm a Servite sister from Wisconsin and a member of the board of the International Thomas Merton Society. Before we get to our main event, I want to make a few short announcements. Tuesdays with Merton is sponsored by the International Thomas Merton Society and the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union. The webinars are scheduled to run on the second Tuesday of each month. And now it is my pleasure to introduce you to Professor Christopher Premock. Dr. Premock lives with his wife, Lori, a pediatrician, and their children in the Denver area, where he serves as the University Chair of Ignatian Thought and Imagination and Associate Professor of Theology at Regis University. He is also the current Vice President of the International Thomas Merton Society. Chris is the author of six books, including Hope Sings So Beautiful, Graced Encounters Across the Color Line, and two award-winning studies of Thomas Merton, At Play and Creation, Merton's Awakening to the Feminine Divine, and Sophia, the Hidden Christ of Thomas Merton. His book Sophia earned him the Thomas Merton Award, which in the Merton Society we also call the Louis which is the highest honor of the International Thomas Merton Society. Chris is a talented musician and student of African-American history and spirituality. I was among the 700 or so Catholic sisters in 2017 when he addressed the Leadership Conference of Women Religious in Orlando. Switching between the podium and the piano, he spoke on racial justice, resurrection faith, and The Legacy of Slave Songs, interweaving his presentation with hauntingly beautiful renditions of African-American spirituals. If I have one regret about this being a webinar and not an in-person presentation, it's that we won't be able to experience the full range of Chris Premick as a virtuoso. And now here is Christopher Premick speaking on, what does God's gender have to do with it? Merton's Awakening to the Feminine Divine.
1: Good evening to everybody. Um, Thank you so much, Teresa, for that introduction. Um, It's amazing to be with you all and to see so many friendly faces uh, on the little box in my screen. So I wanna thank uh, a few people before I begin particularly um, Teresa and uh, Peter at the Bernadine Center and my colleagues in the ITMS for the honor of inviting me to speak uh, for this Tuesdays with Merton series. Um, And I wanna urge you to look at the uh, subsequent uh, Tuesdays with Merton series coming up uh, after this one, Um, some fantastic uh, material and folks lined up for those talks. So thanks again to everybody for being here and to all of you who are joining us tonight. Um, I wanna begin, if I may, with a prayer, a prayer to sacred wisdom. Um, And I'm borrowing here from one of the uh, so-called O antiphons um, that are invoked in churches around the world during the season of Advent you know, that season of heightened expectation and waiting for the coming of God, which begins in just a few weeks. And so let us pray. O wisdom, you came forth from the mouth of the most high and reaching from beginning to end, you ordered all things mightily and sweetly, guiding creation with power and love and mercy. Come and teach us the way of knowledge and peace. Wisdom as Father Jim Martin writes, wisdom can be a hard grace. Often the grace received is something essential in the spiritual life, the ability to see exactly where we are not wise. O God of all creation, we pray for the grace of your wisdom in these days of uncertainty and division. We ask you to send your spirit of wisdom upon all of us gathered here tonight, that our time together might be filled with understanding and insight. We give you thanks for the witness of Thomas Merton, for the fellowship of the International Thomas Merton Society, and for all your prophets and saints, people known and unknown to us, living and dead, who embody your spirit of courage and truth, mercy and friendship across all the boundaries that divide us. Free us from all that blinds us to the suffering of our most vulnerable sisters and brothers, the suffering of non-human creatures, and the suffering of the earth, our common home, May we have the courage of the prophets and saints to dare to imagine and build together another possible future. O wisdom, come and teach us the way of your knowledge and peace. Amen. So again, good evening to to all of you and welcome and thank you for being here. Um, as I was preparing um, as I was preparing for this talk, um, just want to want to see your your faces so I'm going to pull up my video panel here. So as I was thinking about this talk tonight and preparing, I found myself kind of unexpectedly returning to those long days, months, and years during my doctoral studies that I spent poring over Merton's writings in the Hesburgh Library at the University of Notre Dame. During those years, I was with my family, of course, and I was much supported by my wife, Lori, who had just finished her pediatric residency in Denver, and we had moved to South Bend while she was very pregnant with our second child, our daughter, Grace. I began my program at Notre Dame with no hint or intention of studying Thomas Merton. But the questions I was asking as a theologian in training, it was fall of 2003, some five months into the second Iraq war. The questions I had kept drawing me back to Merton. Merton, after all, had been a pastor to the peace movement, a pioneer of interfaith dialogue, a contemplative and witness to hope whose life spanned the bloodiest history in century, bloodiest century in history, excuse me. A Catholic intellectual at the peak of his influence in the decade I was born, an era that Merton would call a season of fury Who, I wondered, was the Christ of Merton's prophetic religious imagination? Who is the God that centered his outreach in friendship to others across every religious, racial, and political boundary? In whose trust did Merton go for courage during those years of tremendous violence and fragmentation? And what occurred to me, was how fortunate I was to ask these questions in the environment of Notre Dame and not at some other university. And no, not because of their football program. Quite to the contrary, it occurs to me that what Notre Dame gave me was an intellectual climate, not so far from monasticism. To be sure what my lord, my wife Lori gave me actually was a climate not so far from monasticism, which is to say her support freed me for hours and days of solitude in the library, cloistered in the study at home, or wandering freely in our backyard, nearly an acre of woods we had out back, not far from the St. Joseph River. In fact, Lori likes to tell the story of how often our kids would ask, where's dad? And she would answer, he's up in the attic with uncle Tom (laughs) or I have no idea where he is. I think I saw him heading out back into the trees a few hours ago. Larry Cunningham who I had the great privilege of studying with at Notre Dame describes the monastic tradition in his introduction to Thomas Merton's spiritual master as follows. He says the monastic tradition, quote, was less concerned with dialectics and more with experience, a theology developed not from the scholar's cathedra or the scholar's chair, but on the kneeling bench. Above all, it was a theology that grows out of the ancient practice of Lectio Divina. Merton himself in a 1949 letter to his friend, Bob Lacks, took aim at the scholastic theology that so dominated the textbooks of Catholic seminaries in the 1940s. Writing to Lacks, typically tongue in cheek, he wrote, I've suddenly woke up to the fact that somebody needs to be teaching theology the way St. Augustine did and not the way textbook in seminaries do. Someone should be able to find the living God in scripture and then lead others to find God there. All theology properly ends in contemplation and love and union with God, not in ideas about God, and a set of rules about how to wear your hat. The point is, there are different ways to approach the question that frames our conversation tonight. The question of the feminine face of God, or Wisdom Sophia, as she emerges in the Bible and in Merton's writings. We could approach the question first and foremost as dialecticians as in a kind of mathematics, bending our brains to ask, okay, who is she? And how does she fit into the logic of the Trinity, for example? Is she a fourth person alongside the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or we could approach the question of her presence in the Bible first and foremost, as Merton did, as a form of Lexio Divina, Not trying to understand or explain so much or to fit her into our well-worn categories, so much as to quiet ourselves, to listen deeply, so as to allow Israel's memory and experiential understanding of God, as it were, to rise to the surface. Now, this is not to discount the importance of a systematic approach to theology, doctrine, spirituality, or the Bible. Indeed, a significant part of my work on Merton is taken up with systematic and doctrinal questions. But to understand Merton, I came to realize I couldn't begin there. And so it was finally in a spirit of lexio Divina that I began to listen, perhaps like a musician hearing Miles Davis or Billie Holiday for the first time. I began to listen to the music embedded in Merton's wisdom haunted writings. Just as Merton himself in the rhythms of his monastic life would come to encounter Wisdom Sophia as God herself God's outpouring of love and mercy, who yearns for incarnation from before the very beginning. The God who yearns to come alive in each of us with the dawning of each new day. And so in that spirit of Lectio Divina, I want to invite us to consider, to contemplate a passage from Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, Uh, This is Merton's journal from the 1960s, from a section that Merton titles, The Night Spirit and the Dawn Air. How the Valley Awakes. At 2.15 in the morning, there are no sounds except in the monastery. The bells ring, the office begins. Outside nothing except perhaps a bullfrog saying, Om in the creek or in the guest house pond. Some nights he is in Samadhi, there is not even Om. The first chirps of the waking day birds mark the point vierge of the dawn under a sky as yet without real light, a moment of awe and inexpressible innocence. When the father in perfect silence opens their eyes, they begin to speak to him not with fluid song, but with an awakening question that is their dawn state, their state at the point vierge. Their condition asks if it is time for them to be. The answers, yes. Then they, one by one, wake up and become birds. They manifest themselves as birds beginning to sing Presently, they will be fully themselves and will even fly. Meanwhile, the most wonderful moment of the day is that when creation in its innocence asks permission to be once again, as it did on the first morning that ever was. All wisdom seeks to collect and manifest itself at that blind point. Here is an unspeakable secret. Paradise is all around and we do not understand. It is wide open. The sword is taken away, but we do not know it. We are off one to his farm and another to his merchandise. Lights on, clocks ticking, thermostats working, stoves cooking, electric shavers filling radios with static. Wisdom cries the dawn deacon, but we do not attend. If the ears of our hearts are attuned to the text, notice how Merton's gender language for God, in this case for the divine presence in nature, is fluid, permeable, not fixed to a single image. While the name father appears several times in the passage, there are also hints of the Bible's more hidden counter testimony to the feminine face of God, wisdom, proverb, Sophia. Indeed conjectures of a guilty bystander from beginning to end is a journal saturated with wisdom imagery. Who is she? Who is she? While well, scholars have argued about this for centuries, of course, um, she appears especially in the book of wisdom and Proverbs as a kind of divine child an animating presence at play within the creation. God with us in the dance of life as it springs forth from the natural world. Elsewhere, she appears as a woman and a prophet crying out from the crossroads of the city, calling out especially to the little and to the poor, beckoning the human community toward a future of justice and peace. The Jewish rabbinic traditions would call her the divine Shekinah. The word Shekhinah from the Hebrew word shakan, which means to dwell, to dwell as if in a tent. She is the one who accompanies the people of God in their exile and their despair. She brings reassurance. She makes a way out of no way. She enkindles hope. As Merton would put it in a letter to his friend, the Viennese artist, Victor Hammer, for God is not only a father, but a mother. He is both at the same time. To ignore this distinction is to lose touch with the fullness of God. This is a very ancient intuition of reality which goes back to the oldest oriental thought. For the masculine feminine relationship is basic in all reality, simply because all reality mirrors the reality of God. Merton was haunted by the wisdom passages in the Bible. He was haunted by her presence in the liturgy of Eastern Christianity. Above all, he was moved by her presence in the theologians of the Russian mystical school, whose books Merton was reading in the 1950s, daring thinkers like Vladimir Soloviev, Sergius Bulgakov, and Paul Iftokomov. But more and more in the last decade of his life, Merton was haunted by Sophia herself. She came to him in his dreams. He heard her voice in the wind blowing through the trees outside the hermitage. She came to him in the shy fawn who played in the meadow along the gravel path leading down to the monastery. And perhaps most famously, she came to him in Louisville at the corner of Forth and Walnut in the midst of the city when Merton, as he writes, quote, was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, even though we were total strangers. What is not so well known about this pivotal moment is how Merton himself would interpret it. Some months later in a letter to Boris Pasternak, he tells Pasternak what happened to him in Louisville And he invokes the divine feminine, the name Proverb, to describe the beauty and secret purity he saw in the passersby. And they did not know their real identity, he says to Pastor Neck, as the child so dear to God, who from before the beginning was playing in his sight all days, playing in the world a reference there to perhaps his favorite wisdom passage, Proverbs chapter 8, verses 22 to 31. All of these wisdom encounters would come to fruition in Merton's prose poem of 1961, Hagia Sophia, or Holy Wisdom, one of his most daring and beautiful works. Structured in four parts, according to the liturgical hours, the poem opens in a hospital room at dawn as the speaker is awakened out of languor and darkness by the soft voice of a nurse. There is in all visible things an invisible fecundity, a dimmed light, a meek namelessness, a hidden wholeness This mysterious unity and integrity is wisdom, the mother of all, natura naturans. There is in all things an inexhaustible sweetness and purity, a silence that is a fount of action and joy. It rises up in wordless gentleness and flows out to me from the unseen roots of all created being, welcoming me tenderly, saluting me with indescribable humility. And this is at once my own being, my own nature and the gift of my creator's thought and art within me speaking as Hagia Sophia, speaking as my sister, Wisdom. And from the second section of the poem, O blessed silent one who speaks everywhere. We do not hear the soft voice, the gentle voice the merciful and feminine, we do not hear mercy or yielding love or non-resistance or non-reprisal. Yet she is the candor of God's light, the expression of his simplicity. We do not see the child who is prisoner in all the people and who says nothing. That image haunts me to this day. What can he mean we do not see the child? who is prisoner in all the people and who says nothing. But then in a singular flash of hope, she smiles for though they have bound her, she cannot be a prisoner. When Jesus prefaced his words, his teachings with these words, let those with eyes to see, see, and those with ears to hear, hear. Scholars tell us he was speaking as a teacher of Jewish wisdom, appealing not just to the head, but to the heart and imagination, the body and the senses, the whole person of the listener. This too is Merton's gift, but it is not necessarily an easy gift to receive, neither from Jesus nor from Merton. In effect, the wisdom teacher invites us to sit in the belly of a paradox, Listen to the silences, hear the forgotten voices, let things seen and unseen speak to you. God comes to us in the wind on the air, the rustle of the trees and the voice of the stranger. And yes, even in the face of the enemy, nothing is impossible with God, but can we believe it? From the third section of the poem, Now the wisdom of God, Sophia, comes forth, reaching from end to end mightily. She wills to be also the unseen pivot of all nature, the center and significance of all the light that is in all and for all. That which is poorest and humblest, that which is most hidden in all things is nevertheless most obvious in them and quite manifest for it is their own self that stands before us, naked and without care. But she remains unseen, glimpsed only by a few. And sometimes there are none who know her at all. If Sophia is indeed the pivot of all nature, natura naturans or nature naturing, nature being itself like the birds, right at the dawn light, Then why does she remain unseen, glimpsed only by a few? Why are there sometimes none who know her at all? And I wanna return back to that passage from Conjectures for a moment. Unlike the birds whose dawn state asks the creator if it is time to be, Merton laments that quote, we are fallen into self mastery and cannot ask permission of anyone. We face our mornings as men of undaunted purpose. We know the time and we dictate terms, we suppose. We have a clock that proves we are right from the very start. We are in touch with the hidden inner laws. We will say in advance what kind of day it has to be. Then if necessary, we will take steps, steps, we will take steps to make it meet our requirements. If you want a vivid picture of what Merton sees as the result of a world run by self mastery and hubris, where sanity and reason have succumbed to the dictates of power politics, read chant to be used in procession around a site with furnaces, his poem about Auschwitz, which appears in the same volume as Hagia Sophia. Read a devout meditation in memory of Adolf Eichmann and read original child bomb. And it becomes very clear what happens to the divine child who is prisoner in all the people. She is gassed, she is silenced, she is singled out and shamed, and she is replaced finally and consummately by a nuclear child whom we affectionately named Little Boy, nurtured in a top secret operation in New Mexico, we called Trinity, who fell from the womb of the Enola Gay, a bomber named for the mother of one of its pilots. And after the original child fell from the sky, incinerating immediately 70,000 people, the President of the United States proclaimed, almost devotionally, We found the bomb and we used it. Against the desecration of the divine image in humanity, against the plundering of the earth, against the horror of replacing the divine child in us with a thermonuclear one, Merton interjects the soft voice of Sophia. At once my own being, my own nature and the gift of my creator's thought and art within me. But the question again, can we believe it? Are we really capable of infleshing the freedom of God for love, for mercy, for what Merton calls the work of new being in grace? Do the scriptures think too highly of us? Listen to a passage from Merton's journal of March, 1958, just after the experience at Forth and Walnut, where he comments on a marvelous book he picked up in Louisville, he says, for a few pennies. Some of you may recognize this book. Apparently it was a bestseller, entitled The Family of Man. It was a book of color photographs of people from all around the world. And Merton remarks in his journal, all those fabulous pictures, how scandalized some people would be if I said that the whole book to me is to me a picture of Christ. And yet that is the truth. There, there's Christ in my own kind, my own kind, kind which means likeness and which means love and which means child. There is only this great secret between us that we are all one kind and what matters is not what this or that one has committed in his heart, separate from all the others, but the love that brings him back to all, to all the others in one Christ. God is seen and reveals himself as human, and there is no other hope of finding wisdom than in divine humanity, our own humanity transformed in God. Just behind this passage, you can hear Merton's uh, reading of the Russian theologians reflecting on the mystery of divine humanity, what they called the doctrine of the humanity of God. The great problem of course, remains of awakening of realization of this deepest truth of our being In short, how do you tell people that they are walking around shining like the sun as he asked himself at Fourth and Walnut? And so Hagia Sophia, the poem begins at dawn with the awakening of one man in the hospital. It concludes the poem ends at nightfall with the image of a God, a Christ figure who shares freely and without reserve the poverty and the glory of the human condition. The shadows fall, the stars appear, the birds begin to sleep. Night embraces the silent half of the earth. A vagrant, a destitute wanderer with dusty feet finds his way down a new road, a homeless God lost in the night without papers, without identification, without even a number, a frail expendable exile lies down in desolation under the sweet stars of the world and entrusts himself to sleep. And so between these two images that bookend the poem dwells the question of God, which many of Merton's time were asking in which many today are asking, where is God? Who, who is God or simply is God? And if God is, then why is the world in such a damn mess? More precisely, how do we distinguish the true God from the idols of empire that rule our time? But also between these two images that book and Hagia Sophia dwells the question of humanity, of who we are, of our sacred calling to participate in the life story of God. What would it mean then to live together with wisdom? For Merton, it is to live fully awake in the center of these terrible contradictions of our times while refusing to be defined by them, to accommodate ourselves to them, to the way things are, like so many numbers fed into a computer. Like the birds at La Pointe Vierge, with the dawn of each new day, we are invited again to be and to participate in the life story of God in history, unfolding in history. For gentleness comes to him when he is most helpless and awakens him beginning to be made whole. Love takes him by the hand and opens to him the doors of another life, another day. I wanna step back for a moment and just invite you to take a deep breath and just absorb some of these images And what do you feel moving in your own heart? What images especially rise to the surface or capture your imagination? I began with an appeal to the spirit of Lexio Divina. And if we could pull back the lens for a moment and just contemplate the dawn state of our world today. It's not too difficult to behold in our world what Merton calls In a haunting phrase, right, the the night face of Sophia, the night face of Sophia, the protest of life itself and a mother loves rebellion against a world increasingly engineered for war, for violence against women and men and children and planetary destruction. And so I want to offer a kind of visio divina, if I may, of the signs of our times. She rises from the burning rainforests of the Amazon River Basin, and in their mournful lament for Sister Dorothy Stang, murdered for her defense of the trees and indigenous peoples. She speaks to us in the mothers of the disappeared, who dance silently for their missing sons and daughters, husbands and grandsons, sisters and granddaughters. She is Mary the mother of Jesus, and she is all women who hold the crucified bodies of their sons and daughters, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Sandra Bland, or who cry out inconsolably this this very day at our southern border for children who have been torn from them. She rises defiantly in the witness of Malayla Yousafzai, shot in the head by the Taliban, targeted because of her determination to go to school. She speaks fiercely in Greta Thunberg, calling world leaders to account on behalf of a wounded planet that her generation stands to inherit. She still echoes in Sojourner Truths Still electrifying ain't I a woman and in the poetry of the late great Maya Angelou, you may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust I'll rise. She cries out in the silent aftershocks of destroyed natural landscapes. The earth, our sister, our common home as Pope Francis laments in Laudato Si, the earth herself burdened and laid waste, he writes, is among the most abandoned and maltreated of our poor. She groans in travail. And so I, I don't know that I've answered the question we came here with that I propose for our discussion. What does God's gender have to do with it? And to be clear, as a father myself, and as the son of a loving father, the name of father still remains for me a powerful image of the Bible's core teachings about love, about love both human and divine. For many people of faith, father is an empowering image of divine constancy and loving care. Just picture uh, the father here in Rembrandt's famous Uh, the return of the prodigal son, his two hands enfolding the son in mercy. And some have commented that one of his hands looks more masculine and another looks more feminine, that really the two faces of God are contained in this single image. And I I agree. And And yet, for those whose experience of fatherhood is traumatic or abusive, domineering or cold. The image can actually be a grave stumbling block for experiencing God's love and mercy as revealed in the scriptures and in the life of Jesus. For many, the line between paternal and patriarchal power is much too thin. And so we must remember that God is also mother, spirit, and Shekinah, lest we deny our maternal and feminine experiences of grace and foreclose the imaginative flexibility of the Bible itself, not to mention the powerful voices of women throughout the intellectual and mystical tradition of the church, Hildegard, Teresa, Claire, Julian of Norwich, uh, who is beloved to Merton, Julian and so many, so many others. On this point, I want to give, um, I'm turning toward my conclusion here and I want to give a concluding word to the renowned Catholic feminist biblical scholar, Sister Sandra Schneider's from her now classic 1986 Magdeleva Lecture at St. Mary's College, Women, And the word. She writes, the masculinity of God and of Jesus has long been used to deny the likeness of women to God and to Christ and to exclude them from full participation in the life of the church. But these images, she writes, quote, carry such a numinous sense of reality that to interfere with them seems not only impossible, but dangerous. To tamper with our images of self, God, and world threatens to destroy the very coordinates of reality. She continues I would like to suggest, however, that just as the self and world images can be healed, so can the God image. It cannot be healed, however, by rational intervention alone. What must be undertaken is a therapy of the religious imagination, first in regard to God and then in regard to our relationship to Jesus Christ. And here I think for me is her key point in this this lecture that the healing of the religious imagination is not only about thinking differently about God. She notes, it's it's not only to think differently about God, it is to experience God differently. It is to experience God differently. And I would add, it is to remember God differently as evoked in the diversity of images, names, and metaphors for God in the Bible. The retrieval of deep communal memory and experience of God This is what we see in Merton's awakening to the divine feminine. A last point, without question, without question, the mystery of God transcends all images and gender-bound metaphors, since God is not an object of empirical knowledge. In this respect, Merton was a strongly apophatic thinker. It is also significant that Merton uses gendered metaphors interchangeably in Hagia Sophia in the poem, as we saw, to suggest a God beyond traditional gender binaries. Yet we must not, I believe, along with Sandra Schneider's and feminist thinkers for some 40, 50 years, we must not be too quick to move beyond feminine images prior to having lingered with them for a very long time. And by we, I mean Christian communities from East to West who share the same Bible, but the point surely radiates outward to include Jews and Muslims and other peoples of the book whose religious imaginations and therefore families, communities, societies also call for the healing of patriarchal deformations. It is a delicate thought experiment to be sure, but by no means is it a gratuitous one so long as oppressed women, men and children have their histories inscribed on their bodies. And to these I would add our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, when will they find a welcome place in our conception of the divine. Does not the imago Dei dwell in them? To conclude, there's a beautiful teaching in the Jewish tradition called tikkun olam, a Hebrew phrase, a Hebrew phrase meaning to repair the world, the rescuing, to make good of what is left of this smashed world. I think Merton would agree with the late Rita Gross, uh, a much beloved uh, feminist scholar who is both Buddhist and Jewish in her sensibilities, who writes, when the masculine and the feminine aspects of God have been reunited and the female half of humanity has been returned from exile, we will begin to have our tikkun olam, the world will be repaired. So thank you. Um, Thank you so much for your attention. And um, with that, Teresa, I would like to open up the floor. um, And Alan, I think you're gonna help with that. Why don't we just take a deep breath for a moment. Um, Again, any images from the poem or any of the drawings that I shared, many of those drawings were by Merton himself. Um, I I would love to hear what what rises in your consciousness from any of this presentation. So again, thank you for for your attention.
2: Thank you so much, Chris, for that really insightful moving uh, presentation. We have a few questions that we'll take us to the top of the hour, at least, if not on to no later than a quarter past the hour. First one comes from Ann Pearson, who says, I never really thought about the perversion of the feminine through the atomic bombs. Do you see a similar perversion in the lack of empathy and transformative justice in response to the protests from the government, which often calls itself Christian?
1: Yeah, I, I presume the questioner is asking about the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests. I assume. And, and the la- sort of lack of understanding and empathy from our government around those protests. Yes. Well, in a word, um, yes, <laughs> uh, a, a discouraging and dismaying kind of um, either inability, incapacity, or willful uh, unwillingness, right, to uh, to even for two seconds ask the question, well, where is this coming from, you know? Uh, empathy is a key theme in, in my teaching, especially around race, around racial justice. Uh, I teach a class called Black Literature and Faith, where we go back to the slave narratives and then all the way forward through the 20th century into poets like Maya Angelou, um, James Baldwin and others. And through that course, uh, the definition, kind of the working definition we, we, we come to as a class with my students, empathy as both the capacity and the willingness to enter into the life world of another human being or another community. Right? But notice those the two parts of that definition, both the capacity and the willingness I asked this question on the first day. You know, the capacity for empathy is it is it inborn? Is it part of our nature, or is it something we have to learn, or is it something of both? Um, and it's fascinating to hear students, you know, wrestle with that question. Is it something we can be taught out of? Which I think is certainly true. I happen to believe that empathy is something that's part of our nature. That Um, love is the law of our being, Um, but but it also involves an extension of will, of freedom, right, the capacity and the willingness, and so I think we've found ourselves, we find ourselves in a political climate in which uh, both the capacity and the willingness have been severely attenuated, to put it to put it um, charitably, really, um, I, I, I kind of at the same time, I get a little, um, I want to stand up and shout a little bit when, when I see commentators ask, well, can Joe Biden heal this country? Right? And it's an important question. It's a fair question. I understand where it's coming from, but it's not the whole question by a long shot, right? The the whole question would would actually be more like a mirror which says, am I gonna do my part uh, to extend my empathy to people I don't understand and I don't particularly like with whom I disagree very strongly. So if this country is gonna move forward, I think we not only have to look to our leaders, but um, we have to look to, to ourselves.
2: Thank you. Donna Becker asks a very simple but interesting question. Is wisdom hope or does seeking wisdom lead to hope?
1: That's a nice question. Um, Yes and yes. (laughs) Um, For me, hope is about... um, the capacity, the audacity to imagine another possible future than what we have inherited, what than, than the way things are. And I think insofar as wisdom uh, calls out to us, dares us from the crossroads, if you will, to imagine another possible future. What happens with this wisdom tradition, I think, is in, instead of the question, well, where is God? Why isn't God helping us or fixing all of this, uh, the wisdom tradition actually puts a a much stronger emphasis on our own call to participate in the life story of God. And so it's not only God who is entering into the creation, but our freedom, our actions reverberate as it were, back into the life of God. Uh, God is not unchangeable according to the wisdom tradition that, that it's a relational dynamic. And so the love of God is pouring out into the universe and we are invited like Mary was invited, right? are To say yes, to, to say yes to the invitation to be part of God's unfolding life story. And our choices reverberate back out into the universe. So hope the capacity to imagine again, whereas despair is a kind of a series of closing doors. The person in despair cannot see beyond the way things are. right? Cannot imagine another possible future. It's it's a prison for the imagination, a captive imagination. Um, I think the wisdom tradition breaks through that, hardened heart, if you will, at least um, has the capacity to uh, invite us and dare us to imagine again another another way forward to make a way out of no way.
2: Thank you. John Bickham asks, is seeing the divine in all things a gift you find in yourself rather than trying to make it happen with effort?
1: Yeah, I, again, um, yes and yes. <laughs> I think, um, and I don't mean to be to be flippant in my response. On the first point, yes, it's, it's, it's a grace, it's given to us. It's unexpected, unlooked for. Uh, Merton loved the word spontaneous, spontaneity, you know? And you see it in the photographs of Merton with the Dalai Lama or with Chatral Rinpoche right? There's this spontaneity, there's this freedom to just be present to each other. And uh, and then that the moment of grace, that graced encounter breaks through. So that to the degree that, and here's the second part of your question, that there is a discipline to the spiritual life, to the spiritual practice, to contemplative practice that I think prepares us for those moments. And so I don't want to sound pelagian here in the sense that it's all up to us but there to say and I think Merton would say you know the spiritual life there is a discipline to it you show up to your daily practice and very often it's dry it's not there there are no sparks flying but you show up and showing up it prepares you for to meet the person or um to meet the natural world as it comes before us, to meet a meal or a glass of wine, and to fully, to fully enjoy that present moment. Uh, and so wisdom, wisdom breaks through in the dance of life itself. It's not about embracing an elaborate theology. As Merton says, you know, the the, the presence of God is like the air you walk outside and you don't have to define it. You just breathe it. You just breathe it, and that's the spiritual life, but, but there is a certain disposition that we bring through our spiritual practice, I would say.
2: Catherine Kramer is reflecting on the uh, idea of Merton as midwife, assisting seekers to give birth to, new, to a new way of viewing reality. Could you reflect a bit on Merton as a midwife?
1: I love that image. I think that's really um, thank you for the question and for that image. And I make this point in, in my in my book that really um, you know the breakthrough of Wisdom Sophia into Merton's consciousness did not happen all at once. You could say it was gestating in Merton over a very long period of time, from the early 1950s kind of a peak in the late 1950s as he's reading the Russian theologians, especially, but it, it extends all the way to 1968 and to his death. Um, and so there was a kind of a slow gestation. And I, in my view, the poem Hagia Sophia is a kind of a birthing in Merton of all of these uh, different influences, uh, the hours, he spent out in contemplation of the woods you know the many uh the many hours and days contemplating the natural world and so the the emergence of of of, of wisdom in merton's own life was a kind of a slow gestation and birthing to use that that image but then but then as a communicator as a writer, as a poet, he wanted to share this experience with others, you know? Uh, and it was actually the, the inquiry of his close friend, uh, Victor Hammer, the artist Victor Hammer. Uh, Merton was close friends with Victor and his wife, Carolyn, who lived in Lexington about two and a half hours from the monastery, which is my hometown, Lexington. Um, And Merton would often visit the Hammers, and one day he's having lunch at the Hammers, and he sees a a little painting, a triptych, uh, one of the panels of which shows a woman crowning, standing behind the child, Jesus, putting a crown on his head, And, and Merton was clearly distracted by the image. And he kept looking up at it, and finally he says, who is the woman behind the boy Jesus and Victor Hammer said well I don't know yet I don't know who she is I I painted the image and I'm not really sure and almost right away without a further moment of thought Merton says well she is she is wisdom she is Hagia Sophia well a couple days later Victor Hammer wrote to Merton and said what who Who is she? What were you talking about? And Merton wrote a three or four page letter back to him. um, You know, kind of explaining the roots of the wisdom tradition from East to West, including in uh, Oriental and Eastern religions, non-Christian religions. It's a fascinating letter. And at the end of the letter, he says to Victor Hammer, you know, I think we have something important here. Perhaps we could print something up on your on your hand press, you know, Victor Hammer had his own printing press. And indeed that's what would happen. Eventually Merton would write the poem, send it to Victor Hammer. And the first uh, editions of the poem Hagia Sophia were printed on uh, Victor Hammer's hand press. The point I wanna make is that sometimes it's in spiritual conversation with others. Think about your own life, how often this has happened, something Something breaks through, some insight or wisdom that you hadn't quite, hadn't quite put together before. And in this case, Victor Hammer was Merton's midwife.
2: Interesting. Yeah. Doug Hertler is wanting to know, have you had experience with students in discussing gender fluidity? and what are its implications to understanding God?
1: Yeah, wow, that's a fantastic question. Thank you, Doug. Um, I wish I could turn the camera back on you and let you answer it. (laughs) Um, No, yes, definitely. We, you know, one of the problems I think in the Western tradition, and not only the West, but in our theological tradition, is for so long we've thought of God in terms of substance, scholastic categories of substance, um, omniscient, omnipotent, you know, omnipresent, and and these were in the scholastic tradition kind of um, um, vastly oversimplifying. I don't I don't want to give the scholastic tradition a uh, Short shrift. But the point is that our image of God was somewhat fixed, unchangeable, you know, usia uh, or the substance of God. And, 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 and then that the usia of God, the very substance, was linked to God's masculinity, God's fatherhood, right? And in, if you look at the, the, the writings of the church fathers and, and our popes, very often, you know, in very recent popes, who are very nervous about so-called what they call gender theory as a dismissive term, you know? And, and very often they give you the impression that father, you know, is ontologically the substance of God. There's very little to no room in there for other images or conceptions of the divine, right? For a multiplicity of images Uh, for a more relational understanding of the divine, a more fluid uh, understanding of the the divine. Now there's two ways to break the idolatry of patriarchal language. One way is to refuse all images, right? Is to, to ban all gendered images of the divine. A kind of iconoclasm in our speech and imagery around God. That's one way to ensure that no single image becomes idolatrous. In other words, no single image is used to support uh, hierarchical systems of power, which in, in practical effect, as Sandra Schneider's points out, has the effect of diminishing the Imago Dei in those at the bottom of the hierarchy, including our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, no room in the image of God for a non heteronormative experience, you know? But there's a second way to shatter idols. And it's not by removing all images, but by retrieving and multiplying the diversity of images that we find right in our tradition, in our deep tradition. And I do think that what happens when you make room for a multiplicity of images, and you recognize the poetical character of the Bible itself, right, as reaching into the silence for images. Um, And we recognize with a certain epistemic humility that none of our images and languages can capture the mystery then I think suddenly LGBTQ persons, persons who are non-male or female on the binary, um, and I have many students, many students, I have family members who have long ago left the church because they find no room in God or in the language of the church around God for their experience. the multiplicity of images suddenly gives breathing room, right, I can't breathe, said George Floyd. What would the Black Madonna, right, a retrieval of the image of the Black Madonna do for our African American brothers and sisters to see an image of the divine that reflects back to them their own dignity? I don't know, Doug, what what images, I think this is a question for liturgy. It's a question for liturgical art, for Christian art. What are the images that will emerge? You know, one of my favorite iconographers is Father Bill McNichols. And some of you will know his image of the Passion of Matthew Shepard. The Passion of Matthew Shepard, right? Um, Uh, the young man who in Wyoming who was killed because he was gay. That image uh, of Father Bill's, and if you don't know it, I I urge you to look it up. What does it do? It makes room for a conception of of the divinity, right? Of of Matthew Shepard and by extension, our lesbian and gay brothers and sisters. I can tell you that when, when Father Bill painted that image, it became almost immediately uh, a kind of icon for the gay community. At last, somebody is acknowledging our, our, our sacred dignity, You know, through, through imagery, through language, through liturgy. I don't know what that will look like moving forward, but it's a question we have to ask.
2: Thank you. This one from uh, Mary Ellen Thomas. Do you see our church coming to an equality of women, and the call of the Holy Spirit that does not limit the roles of women in our church? You
1: know, um, I would love to say yes. I I, um, I would love to say yes. I think. Uh, a spirit of, of kind of real, um, in Pope Francis, I think there's been a lot more room to breathe on those kinds of questions. Let me, let me say that first. So uh, almost immediately with Pope Francis, there was a th- kind of a theological exhale, if you will, in, in terms of uh, there's something in Francis that says, we have to be bold and messy It's gonna be messy, Uh, but we have to ask these questions about the place of women in the church, the place of gays and lesbians. And so a certain spirit of fresh air, I think, breathes through uh, these questions around doctrine and images of God and the role of women in the church with Pope Francis. But that that being said, you know, Pope Francis, uh, Let me add one other point there. He has a there's this is very Jesuit. He his instinct is not to pronounce from on high, but to feel the pulse of the church at at grassroots level. So collaboration uh, when he before the synod and the family, he insisted that all the bishops around the world, you know, pull their parishioners, talk to their parishioners around family issues before they came together to decide these issues. So my hope is that Francis more and more will bring women into the highest positions of decision-making in the church. And he said as much that he that that's important. Now here's the but or the yes, but um, at the same time, Francis, I think is, is also a product of his culture and a product of his of his cultural upbringing. And there are hints in his language of a certain kind of vestiges of, of patriarchal culture that remain uh, in his language around women. A lot of people just sort of hold their breath and and, and wish that he, you know, uh, would read some feminist theology, which has been around for, you know, 50 years. We don't you know we don't necessarily need a new theology of women. It's there. Read it, you know, uh, and not to focus entirely on Pope Francis, but uh, I do think in our church, which is a global, multicultural church, right? He's he's dealing with multicultures and not just the American culture. Um, I do think that he sets the tone, and in the bishops he appoints, over time beginning there, there can be a change in climate in the church which opens room in our imagination and then in our actions and, and in our leadership appointments and all the rest so I would like to say yes I see it right there on the horizon but I don't know in my own lifetime uh, you know we'll see I think the last thing I would say I said it earlier but I worry that it's for our youngest generation, it's too late. I worry that it will be too late that um, you know let me put it this way, you know there's a movement in our church and beyond Catholic Church called the new monasticism. And a lot of young people are really drawn to the new monasticism, right It's these small house churches that have sprung up in cities around the country. And many of them have committed themselves to working with homeless youth, particularly LGBTQ youth, who have been thrown out of their homes, right? Uh, what I think young people are looking for intuitively, even though they don't have the terms for it, something new is coming to birth, and they're, they're yearning for new forms of community. Uh, the new monasticism involves contemplative prayer, centering prayer intentional community, work on the streets, you know, it's almost a Catholic worker model. It's very similar to a Catholic worker model. That gives me that gives me energy. That gives me hope. In in other words, I don't think the old models of church, you know, it's not about returning to an old normal. Uh, I think we have to follow our young people here, follow their lead in terms of what they're yearning for, what they're desiring. And you know what the, the biggest surprise is when they connect with these mystical and contemplative resources that we can share with them. So the older generations does have, we do have something to share with them. Uh, they are, they're often amazed, you know, I had no idea. I had no idea that this was part of uh, the Catholic church tradition. Nobody ever taught me how to pray. You know, nobody ever taught me centering prayer. Um, So we'll see. But I I think as older people, our task as teachers, as mentors, you know, is to introduce our young people to these other forms of prayer um, and to these elements to heroes, prophets, mystics from our tradition and from beyond our tradition. Abraham Joshua Heschel is one of my heroes outside uh, of the Catholic tradition. I cannot say how invaluable studying Heschel has been to me. Uh, many of you will know Thich Han. Um, so many other great uh, spiritual resources outside the Christian tradition that our young people just get lit up when we introduce them. You know, Pema Chodron, uh, so many others. Um, so what form church will take is, is a question that I think uh, we should be asking. And I, I do think Pope Francis, by disposition, is open to that kind of boldness of imagination.
2: There are many more questions, Chris, that could be asked, but let me simply ask the last one, which will be something, hopefully you can just be very suggestive, and then we'll kick it back to Teresa to end this. Mm -hmm. what would Merton what would you take of Merton to these new monastics these new young uh, folks who are looking for something uh, maybe not in the old church so if you're going to take something from Merton to this younger group this new monastic group what would you take to Merton from Merton
1: yeah I, I I would love to hear others response to that question as well you know it's there's so much that's there to be shared with him, uh, of him to be shared with with young people. It's tricky, you know, Merton is not uh, a, a superficial read. And so sometimes it begins with coaching the disposition needed to sit down and read an essay like, like Rain and the Rhinoceros, you know? That's the essay that jumps right into mind that my students Uh, are blown away by Rain and the Rhinoceros. But it takes some work to work through it with them. And part of it's just the the, the disposition of, you know, cultivating a contemplative engagement with the text. So you need time. And I think the classroom is is one place where you can do that because you have time with young people. Uh, These small communities like the new monasticism, that's another place. I suppose um, I would want to share with them just first his life story, this story that is an incredible story, just his biography that spans, that spans the 20th century, you know? And because it spans the 20th century, his life, his story can be a window into which and through which, you know, we wrestle with... Some of the most critical human questions of our, of our time that remain with us. You know, I would use Morgan Atkinson's uh, couple of films on Merton as a way to introduce uh, students to Thomas Merton. I would use Cassidy Hall's new film uh, on Thomas Merton, which is just about to be just about to be released. Anything I could do, any medium I could use to first just tell them the story of who this person is. And that's a window, it's a doorway through which it's, it's like students are sometimes just amazed to see a Catholic intellectual religious figure reaching out in dialogue to all of these other traditions and they have no idea that that's possible. So I think think just Merton as a witness to interfaith dialogue, Merton as a witness As a pastor to the peace movement and perhaps the last thing I would say is Merton's witness to communion with the natural world to communion with the natural world because that's where young people are with a profound concern for the environment you know and that's where young people Greta Thunberg again where they're leading the way and I think we can introduce them to Merton's nature writings you know uh, and they'll be hooked, and they'll, they'll want to know more. So on that note, thanks for some great questions, and thank you all again for, for your attention and for being here uh, with us tonight. It's been a joy.
0: I'll pick it up from there, and I want to thank you so much, Chris, for that presentation, the depth and the breadth, and what I would call the sheer joy of your presentation. We're so grateful to you, and I also want to acknowledge the the, um, great work you've done for the International Thomas Merton Society. Most recently, uh, Chris spearheaded the Merton Society's statement in on racial justice, which uh, just came out recently. And it was in response to the murder of George Floyd and all the aftermath. And that is available on uh, the Thomas Merton website. I also want to thank Peter Cunningham and the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union for their technical support. We couldn't do this without them. And uh, Peter likes to call himself the ghost in the machine. Well, this evening we had another ghost in the machine. It was Father Dan Horan, who also was in the background there and assisting. He's a member of the planning committee for Tuesdays with Merton, along with Ellen and myself. I also want to acknowledge Bob Grip, who posts the webinars on YouTube, and Mark Mead, who posts them as podcasts. And uh, if you go to the Merton Center website, that's merton.org slash ITMS, you'll be able to get the, um, the links for the webinars as well as the podcasts. Registration is now open for the December 8th webinar which will feature Jonathan Montaldo. He's co-creator of the series Bridges to Contemplative Living with Thomas Merton. His topic is Thomas Merton's Contemplative Exercises for Entering the School of Our Lives. And to register, you go to merton.org/itms. I think the link will be up sometime early tomorrow. If you're not already a member of the International Thomas Merton Society, I can invite you to consider joining the organization. You can check us out on that same website. And so, so for now, goodbye, stay safe, and we hope to see you in December. Thank you.